Everybody dies, don't they? Everybody come back, don't they? Isn't that so? You tried to get into the locked drawer today, didn't you? How do the dead come back, Mother? What's the secret of the dead come back? Chapter 13 He passed out of the room and began the ascent, Basil Hallward following close behind. They walked softly as men do instinctively at night. The lamp cast fantastic shadows on the wall and staircase. A rising wind made some of the windows rattle. When they reached the top landing, Dorian set the lamp down on the floor and taking out the key turned it in the lock. You insist on knowing, Basil? he asked in a low voice. Yes. I'm delighted, he answered, smiling. Then, he added somewhat harshly, you are the one man in the world who is entitled to know everything about me. You have had more to do with my life than you think. And taking up the lamp, he opened the door and went in. A cold current of air passed them, and the light shot up for a moment in a flame of murky orange. He shuddered. Shut the door behind you, he whispered, as he placed the lamp on the table. Hallward glanced round him with a puzzled expression. The room looked as if it had not been lived in for years. A faded Flemish tapestry, a curtained picture, an old Italian cassone, and an almost empty bookcase. That was all that it seemed to contain besides a chair and a table. As Dorian Gray was lighting a half-burned candle that was standing on the mantel shelf, he saw that the whole place was covered with dust and that the carpet was in holes. A mouse ran scuffling behind the wainscoting. There was a damp odour of mildew. So, you think that it is only God who sees the soul, Basil? Draw that curtain back, and you will see mine. The voice that spoke was cold and cruel. You're mad, Dorian, or playing a part, muttered Hallward, frowning. You won't? Then I must do it myself, said the young man, and he tore the curtain from its rod and flung it on the ground. An exclamation of horror broke from the painter's lips as he saw in the dim light the hideous face on the canvas grinning at him. There was something in its expression that filled him with disgust and loathing. Good heavens! It was Dorian Gray's own face that he was looking at. The horror, whatever it was, had not yet entirely spoiled that marvellous beauty. There was still some gold in the thinning hair, and some scarlet on the sensual mouth. The sodden eyes had kept something of the loveliness of their blue. The noble curves had not yet completely passed away from chiselled nostrils and from plastic throat. Yes, it was Dorian himself. But who had done it? He seemed to recognise his own brushwork, and the frame was his own design. The idea was monstrous, yet he felt afraid. He seized the lighted candle and held it to the picture. In the left-hand corner was his own name, traced in long letters of bright vermilion. It was some foul parody, some infamous, ignoble satire. He had never done that. Still, it was his own picture. He knew it, and he felt as if his blood had changed in a moment from fire to sluggish ice. His own picture. 
What did it mean? Why had it altered? He turned and looked at Dorian Gray with the eyes of a sick man. His mouth twitched, and his parched tongue seemed unable to articulate. He passed his hand across his forehead. It was dank with clammy sweat. The young man was leaning against the mantel shelf, watching him, with that strange expression that one sees on the faces of those who are absorbed in a play when some great artist is acting. There was neither real sorrow in it, nor real joy. There was simply the passion of the spectator, with perhaps a flicker of triumph in his eyes. He had taken the flower out of his coat and was smelling it, or pretending to do so. What does this mean? cried Hallward at last. His own voice sounded shrill and curious in his ears. Years ago, when I was a boy, said Dorian Gray, crushing the flower in his hand, you met me, flattered me, and taught me to be vain of my good looks. One day, you introduced me to a friend of yours who explained to me the wonder of youth, and you finished a portrait of me that revealed to me the wonder of beauty. In a mad moment that even now I don't know whether I regret or not, I made a wish. Perhaps you would call it a prayer. I remember it. Oh, how well I remember it. N no, the thing is impossible. Uh, the room is damp. Mildew has got into the canvas. The paints I used had some wretched mineral poison in them. I tell you, the thing is impossible. Ah, what is impossible, murmured the young man, going over to the window and leaning his forehead against the cold, mist-stained glass. You, you told me you had destroyed it. I was wrong. It has destroyed me. I, I don't believe it is my picture. Can't you see your ideal in it, said Dorian bitterly. My uh, ideal, as you call it. As you called it. There, there was nothing evil in it, nothing shameful. You were to me such an ideal as I shall never meet again. This is the face of a satyr. It is the face of my soul. Christ, what a thing I must have worshipped. It has the eyes of a devil. Each of us has heaven and hell in him, Basil, cried Dorian with a wild gesture of despair. Hallward turned again to the portrait and gazed at it. My God, if it's true, he exclaimed, and, and this is what you have done with your life. Why? You must be worse even than those who talk against you fancy you to be. He held the light up again to the canvas and examined it. The surface seemed to be quite undisturbed, and as he had left it, it was from within, apparently, that the foulness and horror had come, through some strange quickening of inner life, like the leprosies of sin were slowly eating the thing away. The rotting of a corpse in a watery grave was not so fearful. His hand shook, and the candle fell from its socket on the floor and lay there, sputtering. He placed his foot on it and put it out. Then he flung himself into the rickety chair that was standing by the table and buried his face in his hands. Good God, Dorian, what a lesson! What an awful lesson! There was no answer, but he could hear the young man sobbing at the window. Pray, Dorian, pray, he murmured. What is it that one has taught to say in one's boyhood? Lead us not into temptation. Forgive us our sins. Wash away our iniquities. Let us say that together. The prayer of your pride has been answered. The prayer of your repentance will be answered also. 
I worshipped you too much. I am punished for it. You worshipped yourself too much. We are both punished. Dorian Gray turned slowly around and looked at him with tear-dimmed eyes. It is too late, Basil, he faltered. It is never too late, Dorian. Let us kneel down and try if we cannot remember a prayer. It isn't the reverse somewhere. Though your sins be as scarlet, yet I will make them as white as snow. Those words mean nothing to me now. Hush, don't say that. You have done enough evil in your life. My God, don't you see that accursed thing leering at us? Dorian Gray glanced at the picture, and suddenly an uncontrollable feeling of hatred for Basil Hallward came over him, as though it had been suggested to him by the image on the canvas, whispered into his ear by those grinning lips. The mad passions of a hunted animal stirred within him, and he loathed the man who was seated at the table more than in his whole life he had ever loathed anything. He glanced wildly around. Something glimmered on the top of the painted chest that faced him. His eye fell on it. He knew what it was. It was a knife that he had brought up some days before to cut a piece of cord and had forgotten to take away with him. He moved slowly towards it, passing hallward as he did so. As soon as he got behind him, he seized it and turned around. Hallward stood in his chair as if he was going to rise. He rushed at him and dug the knife into the great vein that is behind the ear, crushing the man's head down on the table and stabbing again and again. There was a stifled groan and the horrible sound of someone choking with blood. Three times the outstretched arm shot up convulsively, waving grotesque, stiff-fingered hands in the air. He stabbed him twice more, but the man did not move. Something began to trickle on the floor. He waited for a moment, still pressing the head down. Then he threw the knife on the table and listened. He could hear nothing but the drip, drip on the threadbare carpet. He opened the door and went out on the landing. The house was absolutely quiet. No one was about. For a few seconds he stood bending over the balustrade and peering down into the black, seething well of darkness. Then he took out the key and returned to the room, locking himself in as he did so. The thing was still seated in the chair, straining over the table with bowed head and humped back and long, fantastic arms. Had it not been for the red jagged tear in the neck and the clotted black pool that was slowly widening on the table, one would have said that the man was simply asleep. How quickly it had all been done. He felt strangely calm and walking over to the window opened it and stepped out onto the balcony. The wind had blown the fog away and the sky was like a monstrous peacock's tail starred with myriads of golden eyes. He looked down and saw the policeman going his rounds and flashing the long beam of his lantern on the doors of the silent houses. The crimson spot of a prowling hansom gleamed at the corner and then vanished. A woman in a fluttering shawl was creeping slowly by the railing, staggering as she went. Now and then she stopped and peered back. Once she began to sing in a hoarse voice. The policeman strolled over and said something to her. 
She stumbled away laughing. A bitter blast swept across the square. The gas lamps flickered and became blue, and the leafless trees shook their black iron branches to and fro. He shivered and went back, closing the window behind him. Having reached the door, he turned the key and opened it. He did not even glance at the murdered man. He felt that the secret of the whole thing was not to realize the situation. The friend who had painted the fatal portrait to which all his misery had been due had gone out of his life. That was enough. Then he remembered the lamp. It was a rather curious one of Moorish workmanship made of dull silver inlaid with arabesques of burnished steel and studded with coarse turquoises. Perhaps it might be missed by his servant and questions would be asked. He hesitated for a moment. Then he turned back and took it from the table. He couldn't help seeing the dead thing. How still it was. How horribly white the long hands looked. It was like a dreadful wax image. Having locked the door behind him, he crept quietly downstairs. The woodwork creaked and seemed to cry out as if in pain. He stopped several times and waited. No, everything was still. It was merely the sound of his own footsteps. When he reached the library, he saw the bag and coat in the corner. They must be hidden away somewhere. He unlocked a secret press that was in the wainscoting, a press in which he kept his own curious disguises and put them into it. He could easily burn them afterwards. Then he pulled out his watch. It was twenty minutes to two. He sat down and began to think. Every year, every month almost, men were strangled in England for what he had done. There had been a madness of murder in the air. Some red star had come too close to the earth. And yet, what evidence was there against him? Basil Hallward had left the house at eleven. No one had seen him come in again. Most of the servants were at Selby Royal. His valet had gone to bed. Paris. Yes, it was to Paris that Basil had gone, and by the midnight train, as he had intended. With his curious reserved habits, it would be months before any suspicions would be roused. Months. Everything could be destroyed long before then. A sudden thought struck him. He put on his fur coat and hat and went out into the hall. There he paused, hearing the slow, heavy tread of the policeman on the pavement outside and seeing the flash of the bullseye reflected in the window. He waited and held his breath. After a few moments he drew back the latch and slipped out, shutting the door very gently behind him. Then he began ringing the bell. In about five minutes his valet appeared, half-dressed and looking very drowsy. I'm sorry to have had to wake you up, Francis, he said, stepping in, but I had forgotten my latch key. What time is it? At uh, uh, ten minutes past two, sir, answered the man, looking at the clock and blinking. Ten minutes past two. How horribly late. Uh, you must wake me at nine tomorrow. I have some work to do. Uh, all right, sir. Did um, anyone call this evening? Mr. Horwood, sir. He stayed here until eleven, and then he went away to catch his train. Oh, I'm sorry I didn't see him. Did he leave any message? 
No, sir, except that he would write to you from Paris if he did not find you at the club. That will do, Francis. Don't forget to call me at nine tomorrow. No, sir. The man shambled down the passage in his slippers. Dorian Gray threw his hat and coat upon the table and passed into the library. For a quarter of an hour he walked up and down the room, biting his lips and thinking. Then he took down the blue book from one of the shelves and began to turn over the leaves. Chapter 14 At nine o'clock the next morning, his servant came in with a cup of chocolate on a tray and opened the shutters. Dorian was sleeping quite peacefully, lying on his right side, with one hand underneath his cheek. He looked like a boy who had been tired out with play or study. The man had to touch him twice on the shoulder before he woke, and as he opened his eyes a faint smile passed across his lips as though he had been lost in some delightful dream. Yet he had not dreamed at all. His night had been untroubled by any images of pleasure or of pain. But youth smiles without any reason, and is one of its chiefest charms. He turned round, and leaning upon his elbow began to sip his chocolate. The mellow November sun came streaming into the room. The sky was bright, and there was a genial warmth in the air. It was almost like a morning in May. Gradually the events of the preceding night crept with silent, blood-stained feet into his brain and reconstructed themselves there with terrible distinctness. He winced at the memory of all that he had suffered, and for a moment the same curious feeling of loathing for Basil Hallward that had made him kill him as he sat in the chair came back to him, and he grew cold with passion. The dead man was still sitting there too, and in the sunlight now, how horrible that was. Such hideous things were for the darkness, not for the day. He felt that if he brooded on what he had gone through he would sicken or grow mad. There were sins whose fascination was more in the memory than in the doing of them, strange triumphs that gratified the pride more than the passions, and gave to the intellect a quickened sense of joy greater than any joy they brought or could ever bring to the senses. But this was not one of them. It was a thing to be driven out of the mind, to be drugged with poppies, to be strangled, lest it might strangle one itself. When the half-hour struck, he passed his hand across his forehead and then got up hastily and dressed himself with even more than his usual care, giving a good deal of attention to the choice of his necktie and scarf-pin and changing his rings more than once. He spent a long time also over breakfast, tasting the various dishes, talking to his valet about some new liveries that he was thinking of getting made for the servants at Selby and going through his correspondence. At some of the letters he smiled. Three of them bored him. One he read several times over, and then tore it up with a slight look of annoyance on his face. That awful thing, a woman's memory, as Lord Henry had once said. After he had drunk his cup of black coffee, he wiped his lips slowly with a napkin, motioned to his servant to wait, and going over to the table sat down and wrote two letters, one he put in his pocket, the other he handed to the valet. Take this round to 152 Hartford Street, Francis, and if Mr. Campbell is out of town, get his address. As soon as he was alone, 
He lit a cigarette and began sketching upon a piece of paper, drawing first flowers and bits of architecture, and then human faces. Suddenly he remarked that every face that he drew seemed to have a fantastic likeness to Basil Hallward. He frowned, and getting up, went over to the bookcase and took out a volume at hazard. He was determined that he would not think about what had happened until it became absolutely necessary that he should do so. When he had stretched himself on the sofa, he looked at the title page of the book. It was Gautier's Aimant et Camet, Charpentier's Japanese paper edition with a Jacquemart etching. The binding was of citron green leather with a design of gilt trellis work and dotted pomegranates. It had been given to him by Adrian Singleton. As he turned over the pages, his eye fell on the poem about the hand of La Cinere, the cold yellow hand, to supplice encore mal lavé, with its downy red hairs and its doigts de fond. He glanced at his own white taper fingers, shuddering slightly in spite of himself, and passed on, until he came to those lovely stanzas upon Venice. Sur une gamme chromatique, le sein de Paris roussel, la Vénus de l'Adriatique sort de l'eau son corps rosé blanc. Les dômes sur l'azur des ondes suivant la phrase au pur contour, sont comme des gorges rondes qui soulèvent un soupir d'amour. Le squiff à bord de mes déposes, jetant son amarre au pilier, devant une façade rose, how exquisite they were. As one read them, one seemed to be floating down the green waterways of the pink and pearl city, seated in a black gondola with silver prow and trailing curtains. The mere lines looked to him like those straight lines of turquoise blue that follow one as one pushes out to the Lido. The sudden flashes of colour reminded him of the gleam of the opal and iris-throated birds that flutter round the tall honeycombed campanile, or stalk with such stately grace through the dim, dust-stained arcades. Leaning back with half-closed eyes, he kept saying over and over to himself, Devant façade rose, sur le marbre d'un escalier. The whole of Venice was in those two lines. He remembered the autumn that he had passed there, and a wonderful love that had stirred him to mad, delightful follies. There was romance in every place, but Venice, like Oxford, had kept the background for romance, and to the true romantic, background was everything, or almost everything. Basil had been with him part of the time, and had gone wild over Tintoret. Poor Basil! What a horrible way for a man to die! He sighed and took up the volume again, and tried to forget. He read of the swallows that fly in and out of the little café at Smyrna where the hajis sit counting their amber beads, and the turbaned merchants smoke their long tasseled pipes and talk gravely to each other. He read of the obelisk in the Place de la Concorde that weeps tears of granite in its lonely, sunless exile, and longs to be back by the hot, lotus-covered Nile where there are sphinxes and rose-red ibises and white vultures with gilded claws and crocodiles with small beryl eyes that crawl over the green-steaming mud. 
He began to brood over those verses which, drawing music from kiss-stained marble, tell of that curious statue that Gautier compares to a contralto voice, the monster charmant that couches in the porphyry room of the Louvre. But after a time, the book fell from his hand. He grew nervous, and a horrible fit of terror came over him. What if Alan Campbell should be out of England? Days would elapse before he could come back. Perhaps he might refuse to come. What could he do then? Every moment was of vital importance. They had been great friends once, five years before, almost inseparable indeed. Then the intimacy had come suddenly to an end. When they met in society now, it was only Dorian Gray who smiled. Alan Campbell never did. He was an extremely clever young man, though he had no real appreciation of the visible arts, and whatever little sense of the beauty of poetry he possessed, he had gained entirely from Dorian. His dominant intellectual passion was for science. At Cambridge he had spent a great deal of his time working in the laboratory, and had taken a good class in the natural science tripos of his year. Indeed, he was still devoted to the study of chemistry, and had a laboratory of his own in which he used to shut himself up all day long, greatly to the annoyance of his mother, who had set her heart on his standing for Parliament, and had a vague idea that a chemist was a person who made up prescriptions. He was an excellent musician, however, as well, and played both the violin and the piano better than most amateurs. In fact, it was music that had first brought him and Dorian Gray together, Music and that indefinable attraction that Dorian seemed to be able to exercise whenever he wished, and indeed exercised often without being conscious of it. They had met at Lady Berkshire's the night that Rubinstein played there, and after that used to be always seen together at the opera or wherever good music was going on. For eighteen months their intimacy lasted, Campbell was always either at Selby Royal or in Grosvenor Square. To him, as to many others, Dorian Gray was the type of everything that is wonderful and fascinating in life. Whether or not a quarrel had taken place between them, no one ever knew, but suddenly people remarked that they scarcely spoke when they met, and that Campbell seemed always to go away early from any party at which Dorian Gray was present. He had changed too was strangely melancholy at times, appeared almost to dislike hearing music and would never himself play, giving as his excuse when he was called upon that he was so absorbed in science that he had no time left in which to practice, and this was certainly true. Every day he seemed to become more interested in biology, and his name appeared once or twice in some of the scientific reviews in connection with certain curious experiments. This was the man Dorian Gray was waiting for. Every second he kept glancing at the clock. As the minutes went by, he became horribly agitated. At last he got up and began to pace up and down the room, looking like a beautiful caged thing. He took long, stealthy strides. His hands were curiously cold. The suspense became unbearable. Time seemed to him to be crawling with feet of lead, while he, by monstrous winds, was being swept toward the jagged edge of some black cleft of precipice. 
He knew what was waiting for him there. Saw it, indeed, and shuddering, crushed with dank hands, his burning lids as though he would have robbed the very brain of sight and driven the eyeballs back into their cave. It was useless. The brain had its own food on which it battened, and the imagination made grotesque by terror, twisted and distorted as though a living thing by pain, danced like some foul puppet on a stand, and grinned through moving masks. Then suddenly time stopped for him. Yes, that blind, slow-breathing thing crawled no more, and horrible thoughts, time being dead, raced nimbly on in front and dragged a hideous future from its grave and showed it to him. He stared at it. Its very horror made him stone. At last the door opened and his servant entered. He turned glazed eyes upon him. Mr. Campbell, sir, said the man. A sigh of relief broke from his parched lips and the colour came back to his cheeks. Ask him to come in at once, Francis. He felt that he was himself again. His mood of cowardice had passed away. The man bowed and retired. In a few moments, Alan Campbell walked in, looking very stern and rather pale, his pallor being intensified by his coal-black hair and dark eyebrows. Alan, th this is kind of you. I thank you for coming. I had never intended to enter your house again, Gray, but you said it was a matter of life or death. His voice was hard and cold. He spoke with slow deliberation. There was a look of contempt in the steady searching gaze that he turned on Dorian. He kept his hands in the pockets of his astrakhan coat and seemed not to have noticed the gesture with which he had been greeted. Yes, it is a matter of life and death, Alan, and to more than one person. Sit down. Campbell took a chair by the table and Dorian sat opposite him. The two men's eyes met. In Dorian's there was infinite pity. He knew that what he was going to do was dreadful. After a strained moment of silence, he leaned across and said, very quietly, but watching the effect of each word upon the face of him he had sent for, Alan, in a locked room at the top of this house, a room to which nobody but myself has access, a dead man is seated at a table. He has been dead for ten hours now. Don't stir and don't look at me like that. Who the man is, why he died, how he died, are matters that do not concern you. What you have to do is this. Stop, Gray. I don't want to know anything further. Whether what you have told me is true or not true doesn't concern me. I entirely decline to be mixed up in your life. Keep your horrible secrets to yourself. They don't interest me any more. Alan... They will have to interest you. This one will have to interest you. I'm awfully sorry for you, Alan, but I can't help myself. You are the one man who is able to save me. I am forced to bring you into the matter. I have no option. Alan, you are scientific. You know about chemistry and things of that kind. You have made experiments. What you have got to do is to destroy the thing that is upstairs. To destroy it so that not a vestige of it will be left. Nobody saw this person come into the house. Indeed, at the present moment, he is supposed to be in Paris. He will not be missed for months. When he is missed, there must be no trace of him found here. 
You, Alan, you must change him and everything that belongs to him into a handful of ashes that I may scatter in the air. You are mad, Dorian. Ah, I was waiting for you to call me Dorian. You are mad, I tell you, mad to imagine that I would raise a finger to help you. Mad to make this monstrous confession. I will have nothing to do with this matter, whatever it is. Do you think I'm going to peril my reputation for you? What is it to me what devil's work you're up to? It it was suicide, Alan. I'm glad of that. But who drove him to it? You, I should fancy. Do you still refuse to do this for me? Of course I refuse. I will have absolutely nothing to do with it. I don't care what shame comes on you. You deserve it all. I should not be sorry to see you disgraced, publicly disgraced. How dare you ask me of all men in the world to mix myself up in this horror? I should have thought you knew more about people's characters. Your friend Lord Henry Watton can't have taught you much about psychology, whatever else he's taught you. Nothing will induce me to stir a step to help you. You have come to the wrong man. Go to some of your friends. Don't come to me. Alan, it was murder. I killed him. You you don't know what he made me suffer. Whatever my life is, he had more to do with the making or the marring of it than poor Harry has had. He may not have intended it. The result was the same. Murder. Good God, Dorian, is this what you've come to? I shall not inform upon you. It is not my business. Besides, without my stirring in the matter, you are certain to be arrested. Nobody ever commits a crime without doing something stupid. But I will have nothing to do with it. You must have something to do with it. Wait, wait a moment. Listen to me. Only only listen, Alan. All I ask of you is to perform a certain scientific experiment. You, You go to hospitals and dead houses, and the horrors that you do there don't affect you. If in some hideous dissecting room or fetid laboratory... You found this man lying on a leaden table with red gutters scooped out in it for the blood to flow through. You would simply look upon him as an admirable subject. You would not turn a hair. You wouldn't believe that you were doing anything wrong. On the contrary, you would probably feel that you were benefiting the human race or increasing the sum of knowledge in the world or gratifying intellectual curiosity or something of that kind. What I want you to do is merely what you have often done before. Indeed, to destroy a body must be far less horrible than what you are accustomed to work at. And remember, it is the only piece of evidence against me. If it is discovered, I am lost, and it is sure to be discovered unless you help me. I have no desire to help you. You forget that. I am simply indifferent to the whole thing. It has nothing to do with me. Alan, I entreat you. Think of the position I'm in. Just before you came, I almost fainted with terror. You may know terror yourself some day. No, don't think of that. Look at the matter purely from the scientific point of view. You don't inquire where the dead things upon which you experiment come from. Don't inquire now. I have told you too much as it is. But I beg of you to do this. We were friends once, Alan. Don't speak about those days, Dorian. They're dead. The dead linger sometimes. The man upstairs will not go away. He's sitting at the table with bowed head and outstretched arms. Alan, Alan. 
If you don't come to my assistance, I'm ruined. Why? They will hang me, Alan. Don't you understand? They will hang me for what I've done. There's no good in prolonging this scene. I absolutely refuse to do anything in the matter. It is insane of you to ask me. You refuse? Yes. I, I entreat you, Alan. It is useless. The same look of pity came into Dorian Gray's eyes. Then he stretched out his hand, took a piece of paper, and wrote something on it. He read it over twice, folded it carefully, and pushed it across the table. Having done this, he got up and went over to the window. Campbell looked at him in surprise and then took up the paper and opened it. As he read it, his face became ghastly pale and he fell back in his chair. A horrible sense of sickness came over him. He felt as if his heart was beating itself to death in some empty hollow. After two or three minutes of terrible silence, Dorian turned round and came and stood behind him, putting his hand on his shoulder. I'm so sorry for you, Alan, he murmured, but you leave me no alternative. I, I have a letter written already. Here it is. You see the address. If you don't help me, I must send it. If you don't help me, I will send it. You know what the result will be, but you are going to help me. It's impossible for you to refuse now. I try to spare you. You will do me the justice to admit that. You, you were stern, harsh, offensive. You treated me as no man has ever dared to treat me, no living man at any rate. I bore it all. Now, it is for me to dictate terms. Campbell buried his face in his hands and a shudder passed through him. Yes, it is my turn to dictate terms, Alan. You know what they are. The thing is quite simple. Come, don't work yourself into this fever. The thing has to be done. Face it and do it. A groan broke from Campbell's lips and he shivered all over. The ticking of the clock on the mantelpiece seemed to him to be dividing time into separate atoms of agony, each of which was too terrible to be borne. He felt as if an iron ring was being slowly tightened round his forehead, as if the disgrace with which he was threatened had already come upon him. The hand upon his shoulder weighed like a hand of lead. It was intolerable. It seemed to crush him. Come, Alan, you must decide at once. I cannot do it, he said mechanically, as though words could alter things. You must. You have no choice. Don't delay. He hesitated a moment. Is there a fire in the room upstairs? Yes, there's a gas fire with asbestos. I shall have to go home and get some things from the laboratory. No, Alan, you must not leave the house. Write out on a sheet of notepaper what you want. My servant will take a cab and bring the things back to you. Campbell scrawled a few lines, blotted them, and addressed an envelope to his assistant. Dorian took up the note and read it carefully. Then he rang the bell and gave it to his valet with orders to return as soon as possible and to bring the things with him. As the hall door shut, Campbell started nervously, and having got up from the chair, went over to the chimney piece. He was shivering with a kind of ague. For nearly twenty minutes, neither of the men spoke. A fly buzzed noisily about the room, and the ticking of the clock was like the beat of a hammer. 
As the chime struck one, Campbell turned round and, looking at Dorian Gray, saw that his eyes were filled with tears. There was something in the purity and refinement of that sad face that seemed to enrage him. You are infamous, absolutely infamous, he muttered. Hush, Alan. You have saved my life, said Dorian. Your life, good heavens, what a life that is. You have gone from corruption to corruption, and now you have culminated in crime. In doing what I'm going to do, what you force me to do, it is not of your life that I'm thinking. Ah, Alan, murmured Dorian with a sigh, I wish you had a thousandth part of the pity for me that I have for you. He turned away as he spoke and stood looking out at the garden. Campbell made no answer. After about ten minutes, a knock came to the door, and the servant entered, carrying a large mahogany chest of chemicals, with a long coil of steel and platinum wire, and two rather curiously shaped iron clamps. "'Shall I leave the things here, sir?' he asked Campbell. "'Yes,' said Dorian. "'And I'm afraid, Francis, that I have another errand for you. What is the name of the man at Richmond who supplies Selby with orchids?' Uh, "'Harden, sir.' "'Yes.' Harden, you must go down to Richmond at once, to see Harden personally, and tell him to send twice as many orchids as I ordered, and to have as few white ones as possible. In fact, I don't want any white ones. It's a lovely day, Francis, and Richmond is a very pretty place. Otherwise, I wouldn't bother you about it. No trouble, sir. And what time shall I be back? Dorian looked at Campbell. How long will your uh, experiment take, Alan? he said in a calm, indifferent voice. The presence of a third person in the room seemed to give him extraordinary courage. Campbell frowned and bit his lip. It will take about five hours, he answered. It will be time enough, then, if you are back at half-past seven, Francis. Or stay. Just leave my things out for dressing. You can have the evening to yourself. I am not dining at home, so I shall not want you. Thank you, sir, said the man, leaving the room. Now, Alan, there is not a moment to be lost. How heavy this chest is. I'll take it for you. You bring the other things. He spoke rapidly and in an authoritative manner. Campbell felt dominated by him. They left the room together. When they reached the top landing, Dorian took out the key and turned it in the lock. Then he stopped, and a troubled look came into his eyes. He shuddered. I don't think I can go in, Alan, he murmured. It's nothing to me. I don't require you, said Campbell coldly. Dorian half opened the door. As he did so, he saw the face of his portrait leering in the sunlight. On the floor in front of it, the torn curtain was lying. He remembered that the night before he had forgotten for the first time in his life to hide the fatal canvas and was about to rush forward when he drew back with a shudder. What was that loathsome red dew that gleamed, wet and glistening on one of the hands, as though the canvas had sweated blood? How horrible it was! More horrible it seemed to him for the moment than the silent thing that he knew was stretched across the table, the thing whose grotesque misshapen shadow on the spotted carpet showed him that it had not stirred, but was still there, as he had left it. He heaved a deep breath, opened the door a little wider, and with half-closed eyes and averted head, walked quickly in, determined that he would not look even once upon the dead man. 
Then stooping down and taking up the gold and purple hanging, he flung it right over the picture. There he stopped, feeling afraid to turn round, and his eyes fixed themselves on the intricacies of the pattern before him. He heard Campbell bringing in the heavy chest and the irons and the other things that he had required for his dreadful work. He began to wonder if he and Basil Hallward had ever met, and if so, what they thought of each other. Leave me now, said a stern voice behind him. He turned and hurried out, just conscious that the dead man had been thrust back into the chair and that Campbell was gazing into a glistening yellow face. As he was going downstairs, he heard the key being turned in the lock. It was long after seven when Campbell came back into the library. He was pale, but absolutely calm. I have done what you have asked me to do, he muttered. And now? Goodbye. Let us never see each other again. You have saved me from ruin, Alan. I cannot forget that, said Dorian simply. As soon as Campbell had left, he went upstairs. There was a horrible smell of nitric acid in the room, but the thing that had been sitting at the table was gone. Chapter 15 That evening at 8.30, exquisitely dressed and wearing a large buttonhole of palmer violets, Dorian Gray was ushered into Lady Narborough's drawing-room by bowing servants. His forehead was throbbing with maddened nerves, and he felt wildly excited, but his manner as he bent over his hostess's hand was as easy and graceful as ever. Perhaps one never seems so much at one's ease as when one has to play a part. Certainly no one looking at Dorian Gray that night could have believed that he had passed through a tragedy as horrible as any tragedy of our age. Those finely shaped fingers could never have clutched a knife for sin, nor those smiling lips have cried out on God and goodness. He himself could not help wondering at the calm of his demeanour, and for a moment felt keenly the terrible pleasure of a double life. It was a small party got up rather in a hurry by Lady Narborough, who was a very clever woman, with what Lord Henry used to describe as the remains of a really remarkable ugliness. She had proved an excellent wife to one of our most tedious ambassadors, and having buried her husband properly in a marble mausoleum, which she herself had designed, had married off her daughters to some rich, rather elderly men, she devoted herself now to the pleasures of French fiction, French cookery, and French esprit, when she could get it. Dorian was one of her especial favourites, and she always told him that she was extremely glad that she had not met him in early life. I know, my dear, I should have fallen madly in love with you, she used to say, and thrown my bonnet right over the mills for your sake. It is most fortunate that you were not thought of at the time, as it was. Our bonnets were so unbecoming and the mills were so occupied in trying to raise the wind that I never even had a flirtation with anybody. However, that was all Narborough's fault. He was dreadfully short-sighted, and there is no pleasure in taking in a husband who never sees anything. Her guests this evening were rather tedious. The fact was, as she explained to Dorian behind a very shabby fan, one of her married daughters had come up quite suddenly to stay with her, and to make matters worse, had actually brought her husband with her. 
I think it is most unkind of her, my dear, she whispered. Of course, I go and stay with them every summer after I come from Homburg. But then, an old woman like me must have fresh air sometimes. And besides, I really wake them up. You don't know what an existence they lead down there. It is pure, unadulterated country life. They get up early, because they have so much to do, and go to bed early, because they have so little to think about. There has not been a scandal in the neighbourhood since the time of Queen Elizabeth, and consequently they all fall asleep after dinner. You shan't sit next to either of them. You shall sit by me and amuse me. Dorian murmured a graceful compliment and looked around the room. Yes, it was certainly a tedious party. Two of the people he had never seen before, and the others consisted of Ernest Harridan, one of those middle-aged mediocrities so common in London clubs who have no enemies but are thoroughly disliked by their friends. Lady Ruxton, an overdressed woman of forty-seven with a hooked nose, who was always trying to get herself compromised, who was so peculiarly plain that to her great disappointment no one would ever believe anything against her. Mrs. Erlin, a pushing nobody with a delightful lisp and Venetian red hair, Lady Alice Chapman, his hostess's daughter, a dowdy, dull girl, with one of those characteristic British faces that once seen are never remembered, and her husband, a red-cheeked, white-whiskered creature who, like so many of his class, was under the impression that inordinate joviality can atone for an entire lack of ideas. He was rather sorry he had come, till Lady Narborough, looking at the great ormolu gilt clock that sprawled in gaudy curves on the mauve-draped mantel-shelf, exclaimed, "'How horrid of Henry Wotton to be so late! I sat round to him this morning on chance, and he promised faithfully not to disappoint me.' It was some consolation that Harry was to be there, and when the door opened and he heard his slow musical voice lending charm to some insincere apology, he ceased to feel bored. But at dinner he could not eat anything. Plate after plate went away untasted. Lady Narborough kept scolding him for what she called an insult to poor Adolf, who invented the menu especially for you. And now and then Lord Henry looked across at him, wondering at his silence and abstracted manner. From time to time the butler filled his glass with champagne. He drank eagerly, and his thirst seemed to increase. "'Dorian,' said Lord Henry at last, as the chauffeur was being handed round, "'what is the matter with you tonight? You are quite out of sorts.' "'I believe he is in love,' cried Lady Narborough, "'and that he is afraid to tell me, for fear I shall be jealous. "'He's quite right. I certainly should.' "'Dear Lady Narborough,' murmured Dorian, smiling, "'I have not been in love for a whole week, "'not, in fact, since Madame de Ferrol left town.' How you men can fall in love with that woman, exclaimed the old lady. I really cannot understand it. It is simply because she remembers you when you were a little girl, Lady Narborough, said Lord Henry. She is the one link between us and your short frocks. She does not remember my short frocks at all, Lord Henry, but I remember her very well at Vienna thirty years ago, and how décolleté she was then. She is still décolleté, he answered, taking an olive in his long fingers. 
And when she's in a very smart gown, she looks like an edition de luxe of a bad French novel. She is really wonderful and full of surprises. Her capacity for family affection is extraordinary. When her third husband died, her hair turned quite gold from grief. How can you, Harry, cried Dorian. It is a most romantic explanation, laughed the hostess. But her third husband, Lord Henry, you don't mean to say that Verrall is the fourth. Certainly, Lady Narborough. I don't believe a word of it. Well, ask Mr. Gray. He is one of her most intimate friends. Is it true, Mr. Gray? She assures me so, Lady Narborough, said Dorian. I asked her whether, like Marguerite de Navarre, she had their hearts embalmed and hung at her girdle. She told me she didn't, because none of them had any hearts at all. Four husbands. Upon my word, that is trop de zèle. Trop d'audace, I tell her, said Dorian. Oh, she is audacious enough for anything, my dear. And all these feral-like, I don't know him. The husbands of very beautiful men belong to the criminal classes, said Lord Henry, sipping his wine. Lady Narborough hit him with her fan. Lord Henry, I am not at all surprised that the world says that you are extremely wicked. But what world says that? asked Lord Henry, elevating his eyebrows. It can only be the next world. This world and I are on excellent terms. Everybody I know says you're very wicked, cried the old lady, shaking her head. Lord Henry looked serious for some moments. It is perfectly monstrous, he said at last. The way people go about nowadays saying things against one behind one's back that are absolutely and entirely true. Isn't he incorrigible, cried Dorian, leaning forward in his chair. I hope so, said his hostess, laughing, but really, if you all worship Madame de Ferrol in this ridiculous way, I shall have to marry again so as to be in the fashion. You will never marry again, Lady Narborough, broke in Lord Henry. You are far too happy. When a woman marries again, it is because she detested her first husband. When a man marries again, it is because he adored his first wife. Women try their luck. Men risk theirs. Narborough wasn't perfect, cried the old lady. If he had been, you would not have loved him, my dear lady, was the rejoinder. Women love us for our defects. If we have enough of them, they will forgive us everything, even our intellects. You will never ask me to dinner again after saying this, I am afraid, Lady Narborough, but it is quite true. Of course it is true, Lord Henry. If we women did not love you for your defects, where would you all be? Not one of you would ever be married. You would be a set of unfortunate bachelors. Not, however, that that would alter you much. Nowadays all the married men live like bachelors, and all the bachelors like married men. Fin de siècle, murmured Lord Henry. Fin du globe, answered his hostess. I wish it were fin du globe, said Dorian with a sigh. Life is a great disappointment. Ah, my dear, cried Lady Narborough, putting on her gloves. Don't tell me that you have exhausted life. When a man says that, one knows that life has exhausted him. Lord Henry is very wicked, and I sometimes wish that I had been. But you are made to be good. You look so good. I must find you a nice wife. Lord Henry, don't you think that Mr. Gray should get married? I'm always telling him so, Lady Narborough, said Lord Henry with a bow. Well, we must look out for a suitable match for him. I shall go through Debrett carefully tonight to draw out a list of all the eligible young ladies. With their ages, Lady Narborough asked Dorian. 
of course, with their ages slightly edited. But nothing must be done in a hurry. I wanted to be what the Morning Post calls a suitable alliance, and I want you both to be happy. What nonsense people talk about happy marriages, exclaimed Lord Henry. A man can be happy with any woman, as long as he does not love her. Ah, what a cynic you are, cried the old lady, pushing back her chair and nodding to Lady Ruxton. You must come and dine with me soon again. You really are an admirable tonic, much better than what Sir Andrew prescribes for me. You must tell me what people you would like to meet, though. I want it to be a delightful gathering. I like men who have a future, and women who have a past, he answered. Or do you think that, that would make it a petticoat party? I fear so, she said, laughing, as she stood up. A thousand pardons, my dear Lady Ruxton, she added. I didn't see that you had finished your cigarette. Never mind, Lady Narborough, I smoke a great deal too much. I am going to limit myself for the future. Pray don't, Lady Ruxton, said Lord Henry. Moderation is a fatal thing. Enough is as bad as a meal. More than enough is as good as a feast. Lady Ruxton glanced at him curiously. You must come and explain that to me some afternoon, Lord Henry. It sounds a fascinating theory, she murmured as she swept out of the room. Now mind you don't stay too long over your politics and scandal, cried Lady Narborough from the door. If you do, we are sure to squabble upstairs. The men laughed, and Mr. Chapman got up solemnly from the foot of the table and came up to the top. Dorian Gray changed his seat and went and sat by Lord Henry. Mr. Chapman began to talk in a loud voice about the situation in the House of Commons. He guffawed at his adversaries. The word doctrinaire, word full of terror to the British mind, reappeared from time to time between his explosions. An alliterative prefix served as an ornament of oratory. He hoisted the Union Jack on the pinnacles of thought. The inherited stupidity of the race, sound English common sense, he jovially termed it, was shown to be the proper bulwark for society. A smile curved Lord Henry's lips, and he turned round and looked at Dorian. Are you better, my dear fellow? he asked. You seemed rather out of sorts at dinner. I'm quite well, Harry. I'm tired, that is all. You were charming last night. The little Duchess is quite devoted to you. She tells me she's going down to Selby. She's promised to come on the 20th. Is uh, Monmouth to be there, too? Oh, yes, Harry. He bores me dreadfully, almost as much as he bores her. She is very clever, too clever for a woman. She lacks the indefinable charm of weakness. It is the feet of clay that make the gold of the image precious. Her feet are very pretty, but they are not feet of clay. Quite porcelain feet, if you like. They have been through the fire, and what fire does not destroy, it hardens. She has had experiences... How long has she been married, asked Dorian? An eternity, she tells me. I believe, according to the peerage, it's ten years. But ten years with Monmouth must have been like an eternity with time thrown in. Who else is coming? Oh, uh, the Willoughbys. Lord Rugby and his wife are hostess. Geoffrey Cluston, the usual set. I have asked Lord Grotrian. I like him, said Lord Henry. A great many people don't, but I find him charming. He atones for being occasionally somewhat overdressed by being always absolutely over-educated. He's a very modern type. I don't know if he'll be able to come, Harry. He may have to go to Monte Carlo with his father. Oh, what a nuisance people's people are. 
Try and make him come. By the way, Dorian, you ran off very early last night. You left before eleven. What did you do afterwards? Did you go straight home? Dorian glanced at him hurriedly and frowned. No, Harry, he said at last. I, I didn't get home till nearly three. Did you go to the club? Yes, he answered. Then he bit his lip. No, I don't mean that. I didn't go to the club. I, I walked about. I forget what I did. How inquisitive you are, Harry. You always want to know what one has been doing. I always want to forget what I've been doing. I came in at half past two, if you wish to know the exact time. I had left my latchkey at home, and my servant had to let me in. If you want any corroborative evidence on the subject, you can ask him. Lord Henry shrugged his shoulders. My dear fellow, as if I cared. Let us go up to the drawing room. No sherry, thank you, Mr. Chapman. Something's happened to you, Dorian. Tell me what it is. You are not yourself tonight. Don't mind me, Harry. I'm irritable and out of temper. I shall come round and see you tomorrow or next day. Make my excuses to Lady Narborough. I shan't go upstairs. I shall go home. I must go home. All right, Dorian. I dare say I shall see you tomorrow at tea time. The Duchess is coming. I'll try to be there, Harry, he said, leaving the room. As he drove back to his own house, he was conscious that the sense of terror he thought he had strangled had come back to him. Lord Henry's casual questioning had made him lose his nerves for the moment, and he wanted his nerves still. Things that were dangerous had to be destroyed. He winced. He hated the idea of even touching them. Yet it had to be done. He realised that. And when he had locked the door of his library, he opened the secret press into which he had thrust Basil Hallward's coat and bag. A huge fire was blazing. He piled another log on it. The smell of the singeing clothes and burning leather was horrible. It took him three quarters of an hour to consume everything. At the end, he felt faint and sick, and having lit some Algerian pastilles in a pierced copper brazier, he bathed his hands and forehead with a cool, musk-scented vinegar. Suddenly he started. His eyes grew strangely bright, and he gnawed nervously at his underlip. Between two of the windows stood a large Florentine cabinet, made out of ebony and inlaid with ivory and blue lapis. He watched it, as though it was a thing that could fascinate and make afraid, as though it held something that he longed for and yet almost loathed. His breath quickened. A mad craving came over him. He lit a cigarette and then threw it away. His eyelids drooped till the long fringed lashes almost touched his cheek, but still he watched the cabinet. At last he got up from the sofa on which he had been lying, went over to it, and having unlocked it, touched some hidden spring. A triangular drawer passed slowly out. His fingers moved instinctively towards it, dipped in, and closed on something. It was a small Chinese box of black and gold dust lacquer, elaborately wrought, the sides patterned with curved waves, and the silken cords hung with round crystals and tasseled in plated metal threads. He opened it. Inside was a green paste, waxy in luster, the odour curiously heavy and persistent. He hesitated for some moments, with a strangely immobile smile upon his face. Then shivering, though the atmosphere of the room was terribly hot, he drew himself up and glanced at the clock. It was twenty minutes to twelve. He put the box back, shutting the cabinet doors as he did so, and went into his bedroom. 
as midnight was striking bronze blows upon the dusky air, Dorian Gray, dressed commonly and with a muffler wrapped around his throat, crept quietly out of his house. In Bond Street he found a hansom with a good horse. He hailed it, and in a low voice gave the driver an address. The man shook his head. It's too far for me, he muttered. Here's a sovereign for you, said Dorian. You shall have another if you drive fast. All right, sir, answered the man. You'll be there in an hour. And after his fare had got in, he turned his horse round and drove rapidly towards the river. Everybody dies, don't they? Well, goodness me, more Dorian Gray. We are getting along with it. I would imagine after this we have another part, which will probably consist of chapters 16, 17, 18, 19, 20, because I think they're rather short. Although it may be I become weary and I have to split into two. Anyway, what a good writer old Oscar is. He writes some very beautiful prose. I like, uh, and some of his phrases are, memory came back with blood-stained footsteps. That was good. So these three chapters, and often I find that they are quite different, the chapters, almost as if he wrote them quite a long time apart, and um, maybe that's the case. Maybe what actually happened was he did have time between writing these chapters. So we have the first kind of whimsical chapter where he's sitting and reading a book. He thinks about Basil. And he blames Basil, of course, for driving him to it, like all murderers do. In fact, um, one of the things I've discovered is that nobody ever likes to take responsibility for their actions. I had in the my patients who were rapists, paedophiles, murderers, only a few murderers, uh, burglars, and they'll always have a have a justification for actually how they're not so bad. And this is just what Oscar's doing with Dorian really here. And then I, so what is this about, you know? Here is this languid character. What is his defense? Remember that the Greeks believed that the beautiful and the good were the same. So if you were beautiful, you were also good. And that seems very hard for us modern people to, to get our heads round because we all know lots of beautiful people. Well, we may, may do who aren't good. And we know some a lot of good people who aren't beautiful. Oscar Wilde refers to a Greek art throughout, really. He brings in exotica as well, non-classical stuff, in his description of different kinds of musicians. But, you know, the basic ideal here is the beauty, the goodness and beauty are the same. People say this continually to Dorian, that he must be good because he's beautiful. Uh, so is this, is this a kind of allegory? about a dawning on the modern mind that the beautiful and the good are not identical. I honestly don't know. Uh, and Dorian, apart from not taking any responsibility for his actions, kind of, uh, he uses art and beauty in a way that people use drugs and drink and cream cakes and gambling and buying handbags or books, in my case, to distract ourselves, to soothe ourselves from, from guilt and other unpleasant emotions. We, we get a fix, so Dorian has a languid fix of something rather beautiful in French, or some lovely poetry. Um, and so the first chapter, that's what that's about, him not taking responsibility. There he is sipping his chocolate, and Oscar Wilde talks about him looking like a child tied up with play. G guilt does not touch him. It's all in the portrait, of course. 
Uh, and then the second chapter is how he very cold-bloodedly blackmails. He's obviously got something on this experiment, a biologist surgeon guy uh, that you know has got this letter that, and and he has no compunction at all. He's he's a total psychopath, really. And yet he allows himself the consolation of feeling, oh, you do not know how sorry I feel for you, you know, Adrian. But of course he clearly doesn't, because if he felt he really felt sorry for me, he wouldn't put him through this. But he's, he's blackmailing him. And so what comes out of his mouth is not what's in his heart. And I suppose that is exactly what the portrait is, isn't it? That what comes out of Dorian's mouth, what Dorian looks like on the surface is very, very different. And yet he seems to be able to not reconcile the two, but live with these contrary things inside him. And maybe that is another another um, observation on humanity, how we can walk around with very, most of us, many of us, very distinctly in contrary and conflicting modes. So yeah, so he's a blackmailing psychopath, but he's a beautiful one. Again, reminding me very much of... Uh, Stevenson's Jekyll and Hyde. I think I, I, I said that in the other ones that, you know, um, they, they seem to be discussing a similar theme, but different approaches. Oscar Wilde's far more interested in the aesthetics, where um, Stevenson int- is interested in the morality. Stevenson comes across as a far more practical person. I, I like them both, you know, as writers, I do. And then the final one, we're back to the Lady Windermere's fan, we're back to the arch society observations about men are this, women are this, da-di-da-di-da, wives are this, oh my dear, this, you know. It's very witty, but uh, you're like... And yet at the end of the final chapter, we have Dorian going to the river, dressed up in common clothes like I wear, uh, rather than his lovely cravat and and pie tin, I was going to say. Tie pin. Pie tin, tie pin, there we are. I like it. I do like the story, and I love the beauty of it. I like a bit of poetry, really. Uh, and while such a, a nice writer, he can conjure these exotically beautiful, perhaps overblown, sort of like orchids and lilies, really. That's what he is. He's very sumptuous and silken and Persian birds on a ceiling of alabaster. I like that, so that's good. The, the wit is funny. Amongst all the throwaway wisdom... There must be, you feel there is something worth listening to. But really, this is a, the, the triumph of form over substance. Oscar Wilde's aphorisms really succeed because they sound good. And I'm not totally convinced that they carry a, a tremendous amount. Of, all that stuff about women are this, men who are tired of blah, blah, men risk their reputations, women, blah, blah. You know, I don't think there's much in that to take away. But it does sound good, and it gets much quoted because it sounds good. Same as Shakespeare. Shakespeare had, yeah, okay, I think Shakespeare has something more to say. But Shakespeare's success is also because he writes beautifully, and he says things which may be unique, may not be unique, may be fresh, may not be fresh, but but they both say them in in a compelling way. And so, yeah, that is the triumph of form over substance surface over depth and I think running through all of this is that is the theme isn't it what is on the surface and what is below are not identical and the pretty exterior does not mean there's a pretty background or pretty depth so I suppose that is a unifying thing we have the portrait which um, and and the beauty of Dorian so we have beauty and ugliness on the surface beautiful ugly underneath and I think though he might not have agreed with this, 
Oscar Wilde's aphorisms are possibly similar. They are sound great, very witty. But actually, if you think about them, they're possibly banal, often repellent, really. I'm sorry about that, but there we are. So other than that, in my personal life, nothing much has happened. I'm doing too many jobs. I need to cut down on some of the jobs I'm doing. I'm, I'm at a bit of an impasse with the podcast business. It is kind of stuck. But it's, it's doing well, but it's not growing. And I'm like, well, how can I scale this? This is what we say on the internet. We're looking for scalable enterprises. So I've been messing around with internet radio. Now, I've got enough material really to do pretty much 24-7 stories, although every week you, you wouldn't necessarily get a fresh week of stories every week. We would have to recycle them a little bit. And I'm thinking, well, okay, you can automate a lot of that, but really, oh, internet radio, actually, I quite enjoy the idea of being a DJ, a story DJ, but really, will it? Is it worth the effort, really? So the effort is to spread the word. You do a lot of spreading the word. Spread the word, please. Keep keep spreading it. And if any of you want to become patrons, there's a load of people who become patrons, and I'm massively grateful to them. So it's all it's all good. At the end of all this Dorian Gray stuff, I will probably put it all together as an audio book. I had a lovely comment about some guy who started listening to me, and he was um, from the south of England and middle class and educated and a sculptor. And he started off saying that he thought I was some kind of <laughs> ignorant northern type who thought he was clever. I drew the inference. The implication was that northern types can't be clever. And then he sort of came round to it, realising that I wasn't such a bad cow, after all. I can't totally do a posh accent. You must realise, you know, people go on about accents, that the, this standard, this rather standard English, standard English accent is, is pretty foreign to me. It's, a, it's almost as foreign as doing an American accent. And for people who really talk like that, they probably hear it wrong. You know, they hear the wrong notes in the same way that, say, an Irishman or a Scotsman or an American would listen to my ver- or Australian would listen to my versions of their accents and hear that wrong. Anyway, I hope you didn't get blown away by Storm Eunice or Storm whatever in the winds and the rain and the snow. And I hope you're all well. And thank you for listening. I do appreciate your support. You've kind of really, honestly, enriched my life. You really have. Take care, everybody. Isn't that so? Isn't that so?